All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? It's Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with me during this interesting time in the world. Today, Chris Hayes is on the show. Now, Chris Hayes is, is one of the smart guys. He's, he's solid. His scholarship is solid. His cultural criticism and political uh, criticism, solid. Bright dude. What, what's he like as a person? Who I don't fucking know. I know more now because I talked to him. It was interesting to talk to him because he's a journalist guy and he's an earnest dude, you know, and he means it. He's a political commentator. And as some of you know, I, I did my time doing a bit of political talk way back. And I, and I decided that it was not for me to do because uh, my passions lied elsewhere. Well, maybe I should rephrase that. My anger lied elsewhere. It lied wherever it would, I would lay it. I, I don't want to divide. I want to in, embrace and bring people together in their pain and insanity and, and, and make us know that we're all very similar and that our fears and, and frustrations and, and hopes, dreams, and horrendous dark places are, are the same with very little variation. Where none of us are that profoundly unique or necessarily interesting in our fucking insanity and problems. So why wedge the political axe in the middle of that? I think if more people dealt with their personal problems and personal issues and really sort of uh, owned up to them and sat in themselves comfortably, we'd have a much more interesting and realistic political dialogue. And that's where it ends for me today. We'll stay in the trenches of self, if you don't mind. I'm going to be doing some international travel in Dublin, Ireland. I'll be at Vicker Street on Wednesday, September 2nd. On Thursday, September 3rd, I will be at the South Bank Center in London, England, as well as September 4th there again. I hear tickets are selling well. I haven't been there in years. I've never done I've never been to Dublin. I think I was there once at the airport, uh, leaving after uh, being in Kilkenny, which was, was okay, not a great experience, but I'm excited about Dublin. Then on Thursday, October 15th, I'll be at the State Theatre in Sydney, Australia. On October 16th, I will be at the Palace Theatre in Melbourne, Australia. And October 17th, I will be in uh, Brisbane City Hall in Brisbane, Brisbane, right? Australia. I'm looking forward to these trips. I, I have not done uh, England uh or Australia in, in years. I was at the Melbourne Festival and it, it's just, um, it's going to be fun to, to be where I'm at now and to be there. And who knows, maybe it'll be like the most exciting international travel of my life. I do tell you, be, be honest with you, between me and you, once I get on the plane, once I get to where I'm going, once I get into a hotel room that you know, I'm not really responsible for in some ways, not that I'm going to do any damage, but there's a piece to it. There's a piece to it, and I'm looking for some peace of mind because I almost lost my fucking mind the other night, if you, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah, I came unhinged a little bit, I, and I think some of you saw it coming. Uh, you know, over bullshit, but yeah, this is just, it is what it is. It's, it's the way my brain works. It's, uh, you know, I, it's just the way my brain works. I, I, I had the, the health panic, so uh, I went to the cardiologist, and I tried to cajole him into believing that I was... Um, you know, pretty sick that, you know, my heart, my ticker was going, 
But uh, he did the similar test that I had the other doctor. He said everything seems fine for now. But he said we'll get we'll do a stress test. We're going to do a cardiogram. So I'm going to do that not next week, but the week after. I was going to do it next week because I was fueled by panic, and I thought like you know I'm a time bomb. I'm a ticking time bomb. I better go get this shit done because I know something he doesn't know, even though he didn't seem very stressed about it, uh, uh, about the situation. So here's what happened. You want to know how I lost my mind? I bought a car. And the dude over there at uh, Glendale Toyota, uh, Alejandro, man, he helps me out. So we got the car. They cleaned it up. And I got, here's what I got. I got a, a black Toyota Camry hybrid. That's right. I had a Camry, and I just got a, a little nicer Camry. You know why? Because between you and I, I don't give a fuck about cars. I just think, like, I sold my car, the classic shitbox, uh, you know, baseline Camry that had nothing in it that I bought online without driving it in 2005. Just ordered it online. They drove it to my house. I gave them a check. And I've been driving that, you know, for the last 100,000 miles, a little less. I just don't care. I don't want to have a car I care about. So I sold that to, to Ryan Singer. I gave him uh, the comedian pal price. Guy's out on the road. He's hoofing it out there. He's going town to town doing the business, driving across country. That thing uh, as a Toyota still got a, life, a lot of life on it. Ryan's a good friend of mine. I gave it to him for a grand. Toyota Camry, 2006. 95000 and change on it. Gave it to him for a grand because I know it's going to go to a good cause. Ryan's fucking swinging those jokes out there in the middle of nowhere doing the fucking job and that's a comedian's car and uh and a comedian needs it so there you go that's that story we'll see where that car takes ryan singer i'm going to interview him about where that car takes him and what happens in that car from here on out that'll be a, like a secondary series a sub-series of the show all right so i'm excited about my new car i'm driving it around uh you know pick up the girl pick up sarah we drive it around i said what do you think baby she says nice it's got the bluetooth got the whole business i don't know how to work anything in the car yet but it's exciting so then uh, you know nighttime starts to come and i drop sarah off after i give her a little cruise in the car and i'm driving home and like these headlights kind of suck and then i get into my driving like well that's because there's no headlights at all the switch is on headlights not working what the fuck is this about so in that moment this is the way my brain works it's like who can i call right now to fucking lose my shit on over this new car I bought today that's got non-functioning headlights. Where Do I start tweeting at Toyota? Like I had to restrain a pen and tongue, as they say, in the secret society. But, you know, I tried to keep it together, but my brain's been going a little haywire lately because I think things are going too well for me. So, so I don't freak out. Instead, I set my clock for 6.15. I'm going to be the first on the service line because I just leased that car and I got a fucking beef and I'm going to lose my shit. So I drive down to Toyota Glendale, 7 in the morning. I'm there. I'm the first, like, fourth or fifth person there. Met this dude, Mike, from Jersey. We talked Jersey for a little, a little while. We hit it off. I tell him about the headlights. He's like, yeah, man, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Then the, finally, the, the service manager comes in, older guy white-haired dude uh seemed like a nice guy I told him what was up he said i never heard of that before and of course i'm thinking fuck a unique electrical problem on my new fucking car welcome to Lemonland, motherfucker that's what i said to myself inside but i didn't express those feelings outwardly i said really never seen this before so what's going on so i sit there and wait and i'm freaking out because i think like now it's just going to be a battle with this new car boy that new car buzz didn't last very long then old dude, white-haired dude, nice dude, comes into the waiting area and says, there's no bulbs. There's no bulbs in the headlights. And I'm like, what the fuck? No bulbs? 
how the fuck did that happen? But it was probably the best case scenario because that means my electrical system wasn't fucked. He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, no bulbs. That happened on the assembly line? They just forgot to put the bulbs in? I've never seen it. It's a big deal over at the service area. How the hell did this not have bulbs? Maybe some kid or somebody lifted them when they were on the lot. But then it became sort of like, I don't know if we got these bulbs. I'm like, this is a Toyota place. He said, well, if you wait till the guys, the sales guys come, maybe we can take them out of another car. And then out of nowhere, this mystical service elf shows up. This little guy goes, I got him. And I'm like, yeah. So I don't know where he came from, but that's all he said. He just waved a baggie like a guy who just got his drugs. Little baggie, I got him. I'm like, dude, put those fuckers in. So that that worked out. So now the bulbs are working. That was a close one. And now I'm happy about my car again. But anyways, a lot of things were going on all at once and my brain exploded and, uh, and, I, and I yelled a bit. And I tried to start a fight with my girlfriend. And I yelled at my manager and, you know, because there was too much coming in and I had to like, you know, I got to travel and, and, you know, I'm getting my driveway done and that was, everything was going to happen at once. The deck, the driveway, there was going to be demo here. I got interviews next week and, and I just, because I have no capacity anymore and I'm not sure I ever did to, to see more than a day or two ahead. And that means schedule, that means everything. It's like, everything's a fucking surprise to me, like a goddamn child. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. So like, I just short circuited. I just short-circuited and I started texting Brendan, who some of you know now. I'd like to read that directly to you because uh, if you have a question about how to handle uh, a Mark Marin in your life, um, I was losing my mind and I didn't know where to put my frustration because I couldn't make a decision about something. I'm just texting Brendan. Just like, what the fuck am I going to do? There's too much going on. I don't know how I can handle the schedule. Blah, 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 blah. I don't need to get into specifics. I, I, I sent like 20 texts. Just just spinning down the fucking hole of self. Like my brain was short-circuiting because there was going to be work done on my house all at the same time that I got to do interviews and I got to travel. And, uh, you, you know, there was uh, just a million things. Every, after a certain point, everything starts to happen at the same frequency. Like, hey, somebody just texted me and wants to go to lunch. That's exactly the same as, uh, you know, I have to fly to Australia. They, they all come at me with the same intensity. So at some point, I, I, th- there was this text. I said, maybe you don't understand what the fuck I'm dealing with here. I texted that and he had not really responded to anything because it was, I was in a flurry, a flurry of panic and anger just coming through in text form. Maybe you don't understand what the fuck I'm dealing with here. I said, and then, and then a little text balloon goes, Brendan just texts back. Call me if you're going to do this. <laughs> That stopped the fury. That stopped the frenzy. So then I'm like, uh, then I call him. I'm like, hey man, I, 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 okay, I'm sorry about all the text. I just, I don't know. This is my fucking mind. And he gave me a, 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 a suggestion to move some things forward, to clear out time, to look at my calendar and see where I could possibly do the things that I just spontaneously let happen. And I said, no, I can't. This, they're not gonna, I'm not going to be able to change that. And, and and everything was able to be changed, and uh, and and I did not have a stroke. Call me if you're going to do this. See, that's where that's where texting falls off. Is is that you know when the the excited kind of like you know I'm fucked uh, flurry of texts happens, and you just go, you know what? Maybe this is something you should do. You know, with your with your you know, call me, and then uh, it all went away. 
And that's why uh, we've worked together for so long. Did I mention I saw my wildcat, scaredy cat, the one with the fucked up mouth, just popped a fucking skunk right in the head. Just paw popped him right in the head. Skunk was looking around. They were both kind of waiting for food. And fucking scaredy cat was just sitting there on the step of the deck being cool. Fucking skunk is spinning around, sniffing the air, looking for food. Got a little too close to scaredy cat. Pop. Boom. Right in the nose. Skunk didn't even know what to do. He's like, am I going to spray this motherfucker? Am I going to you know, make some weird noises with my feet and jump around in a weird way to see if that has an effect? Yeah, I'll try those. Well, I'm not going to spray yet because it takes a lot to bounce back from that shit. So I'll just do a little weird panic dance and see if that works. Check, look at what my tail does, motherfucker. Nothing, huh? Scared he just held his ground. Skunk freaked out, went away. Then I fed that cat. That's a tough cat. That cat don't give a fuck. All right, let's see who Chris Hayes really is. Or let's have a conversation with him. You know, you get a sense of the guy. You know, we're not going to talk like he talks on the TV show. We're going to talk like a couple guys talking. Maybe I should give him, him, him all his credit. Chris Hayes has a show on MSNBC called All In with Chris Hayes, and that airs weeknights at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. Did I mention that twice? Chris Hayes, right now with me in the garage. After I talked to the president, like, I know that choices were made that he decided to do this show. It wasn't a fluke. Right. But then when you're talking to a politician, like, people ask me if I was nervous, but... I talked to politicians before. So how do you get that guy to be a person and not, you know, get that that front? And I think just the nature of the intimacy of it yep. made it a very different experience. Yep. But he he I he must have had an agenda on something. I think he said it it was to to sort of reach out to people who were apolitical in a sense. Yeah, they I think they are very attuned to the fact that there is this proliferation of channels yeah. by which people can be reached and in some ways those are frontiers that have yet to be settled right by other people mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and i think they're very smart about that in the so sense they, they can sort of come around the side yeah it, that's exactly right where it's like oh well there's all these people that listen to this person there's right all these people that not only listen to this person but i think in in, in a very savvy way like trust this person right. right there's a sort of vouching and validation that happens yeah and sometimes, sometimes the best way to get your message out, quote unquote, yeah. is when you're not in a situation where you're explicitly, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Sure, <laughs> like, sure because, and I think just, that was the, the weird, the, the, the feedback was really, like, I, I think that a lot of people just kind of, like, stopped giving a shit about, you know, him or what he had to say. You know, just in the general population, people yep. who are not necessarily politically minded or, or, or keeping up had just sort of dismissed him as, well, this is the president. And that's that. So I think that a lot of a lot of the feedback I got was people saying, like, I forgot how much I like that guy. Right. Yeah. So he did something. Right. That's right. That's right. And 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 it, it, it that goes back to the point that the two of you made, which is a a point that I think about a lot, which is. We are capable of relating to all sorts of people and bonding with all sorts of people and having affection, admiration for all sorts of people whose politics we don't share when we take the politics That's out, right. right, you know? That was an important thing. And it's one of the reasons why I stopped doing politics. I mean, I don't know how you walk through the world on a day-to-day basis with, you know, uh, 48% of the population go, that's that fucking guy. 
do you have to deal with that? You know, it's only happened to me twice, and 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 I I'm lucky enough that twice that's it out in the world. Or yeah, because because they my, don't watch my exactly <laughs> exactly my my particular level of the, the 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 very specific strata of of fame and or notoriety I have yeah. is such that it is mostly only to the people who like what I do. Yeah. As opposed to broadly to the people that would hate me, right? So I'm not walking around like Michael. Like Michael Moore is sort of this like identifiable yeah, icon yeah, yeah, for, right, for right. a certain kind of conservative, right? Um, so I just don't. I don't attract that. One time I was in New York once, and my child had needed to be changed into Starbucks, and was yeah. and she was wailing. Yeah, and this guy was like, start berating me about ruining the country. Really? And I was just like, hey, buddy, I like I don't care, and I gotta take care of my kid. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And that's and the and a few other times people have in passing said things, but I've never had like some, you know confrontation you don't feel compelled to argue at every turn if somebody approaches you in the street i I don't one of the things that i love the most when i first started being a journalist yeah was the feeling the relief the unburdening of not being compelled to argue like that all my job was to listen right i would go and report on things i go to an evangelical college to the convocation Mm -hmm. and it it was just liberating to say, I, I'm not here to persuade these people that I have the right politics, and right. I'm not here to convert anyone to my worldview. I'm, I just want to hear what I'm just going to listen, and it's, it's, it's an amazing unburdening that happens when you are in a position where I don't feel any. It's not incumbent upon me to argue. Well, but now it is. Now it is. I know. <laughs> What'd you do to yourself? See what you did. You, you sold out. Now you got to you got to uh, argue. argue. Well, let me say this though. It, we 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 argue a lot, but I mean, I just you know, I just spent I've spent four or five days here in California. We're doing this show on the drought, and yeah. you know, I would spend all day with a Central Fa- Valley farmer, right? Who who I this is very different politics. Can you get me up to speed on the drought? Because I I I I think I'm. Uh, I might water my yard once too many times a week. Am I? How how much of the onus is on me, Chris? It's. I'd say. It's what about, have you learned? It's about eighty percent Marin. Is, oh, is, is shit. sort of the line. I figured. I, hear I knew from the, it. The water authorities. Do you, what are you? What are you finding? Well, let's let's go back. So when you were a journalist and you had a certain amount of anonymity under other than a, a, a byline, how did you get into that? Where let's let's start at the beginning, like in a logical way. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the Bronx. The Bronx. Like uh, what kind of what kind of family? Like working class, yeah. Middle so, class. So my it was a working class, middle class family. It was in the Bronx in the eighties. My mom is from the Bronx. Her father uh, had a mozzarella shop in an Italian neighborhood in the Bronx. And Arthur, like on Arthur, Arthur Avenue? Avenue, on Arthur Avenue, a mozzarella shop. Literally, Your grandfather, my grandfather, made on. the good shit. He exactly. Do right. you remember him? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He died when I was about seven, I think. But yeah, did uh, you re- do you remember the shop? Did he the have shop closed. The shop closed before I was born. Um, but do you have like memories of Arthur Ave? Did you? Oh go- my God! The, the place next to it was Borgatti's, which is the across from uh, uh, the church. Yeah, which is where they they make fresh pasta. We used to go. We used to go to Arthur Avenue every weekend, and the fresh pasta with like the cornmeal dusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Isn't that amazing? Those things from childhood that are like defining. Like I've only been to Arthur Avenue once. It's just mind blowing because that shit it just doesn't exist anywhere, man. They're like out here or almost any other city. There's only a few cities where you have real. The reason why Italian food is good is there's Italians there. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I remember when we went to 
you know, I grew up Arthur Avenue. We go to the market, and the market had there was a stall where people bought live chickens. Yeah, and there was like the butcher where it was like real butcher taking like, apart the whole cow like the, oh that's an animal yeah, that yeah. Is be- right being no denying it deconstructed <laughs> in front yeah. of us yeah and then i remember the first time when we went to my family went to italy you know when i was in 17 or so yeah and it was like completely familiar it's like oh this is you sure this is like arthur avenue yeah yeah <laughs> so does like, your mom speak italian she doesn't no she's uh uh her folks did but she does not so um, so what'd your dad do see but you're not all italian so my dad uh, grew up in Chicago and was a Jesuit seminarian. He was going to be a he was going to be one priest. Spent seven, man of the cloth seven years in the in the seminary. Um, lived in Peru for a year doing doing uh, missionary work. Uh, yeah, I mean, like in basically the poor what are called the barriadas sure. outside Lima. Um, yeah, not not missionary work. That's not really, the Jesuits are not like super. No, they just they work out of a church. Yeah, they, they just like the do outfit. a lot of like social justice work and and sort of helping the poor and stuff like that. So that's what he did. He did that, and then he came back and he ended up at Fordham, uh, you know, which is Jesuit school to sort of finish his education. Brendan went there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Fordham looms large in my life because a lot of the people that would f- later form my parents' social circle came out of Fordham because it was all these kind of social justice lefty Catholics. Yeah. Um, and so my dad and his like cohort of of seminarian um, friends yeah. rented an apartment near Arthur Avenue and Marion Avenue that was one floor up from the one my mom grew up in that she lived in, <laughs> and it was through that that they that they met, and that that's and that he gave up the priesthood. So the story officially <laughs> always, and, and, yeah. my, and my parents will listen to this. Yeah. So, the story officially always is that he had decided to leave before. Uh-huh. Uh, meeting my mom but you know my mom has told this story about when when you know when they first started hanging out like my dad had the collar right like she knew i mean her mom when yeah. they when it became clear there was something going on between them was like i think like a bit scandalized in the beginning because uh-huh. like she had met this dude as like oh the nice the nice jesuit priest upstairs who yeah. wears the collar and then right. it's like Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so the story has been somewhat, perhaps, uh, mythologized to take the onus off of your mother. For, I, I, for I, a... I have, I sometimes have my suspicions that, that is the case. I, I don't know, but but I, I've been. I, my, you know, the truth is there, Chris. The, the, Where's your journalistic integrity? Can't you not, push your mom a little bit? I have, <laughs> not, I have not set them up for a grilling on this, but but yeah, that's the that that then they met and uh, and my dad. Dad had already at that point, through sort of being in the in the Jesuits, um, been doing these com- community organizing in poor neighborhoods in the, in the U.S. in Chicago, in the Bronx, and so when they, you know, he left the priesthood and he and his friend from the same Jesuit class yeah. started an organization in the Bronx that was basically doing housing organizing against landlords. Um, my mom was a teacher, yeah, and I so the, I grew up in the Bronx in the eighties. At a time when my dad was doing community organizing, and the Bronx was, you know, the Bronx in the eighties was like gnarly. I mean, I I did not grow up in you know um, the, the projects, south, the, yeah, or the South South Bronx. You right. know, we lived in this neighborhood in the Northwest Bronx, yeah, uh, that was you know a standard kind of working class yeah. outer borough neighborhood. Um, but you know, the the world that my parents' friends, who they're still very close to, and are still this kind of world around me and my brother, yeah. Um, these were all people that were kind of like engaged, like community organizers, community activists in the Bronx in the eighties, like doing really you know amazing work. It's it's interesting though because like you know as much as the 
the Catholic Church gets demonized, and, and probably rightfully so, uh, for a lot of uh, nefarious bullshit, uh, you, you know, with money and, and uh, predators, <laughs> which yes. I think has been going on for centuries. Yeah. Um, the, I, I think people forget that there are a lot of those, a lot of the, the civil rights organizers. There, there was this always this the 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 charitable yes. arm and the and the community arm of the Catholic Church has done a lot of good, uh, incredibly. And that tradition is an amazing tradition. I mean, the people that come out of the church with that kind of real, um, godly commitment to right. the least of these, yeah. When you encounter those folks, like it is an amazing thing to encounter. And those are your parents' friends. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. I mean, in some ways, I mean, I, I you know, I don't want to, you know, they're not saints. I mean, they're, they're, well, yeah. <laughs> but, and, and but, they should be the first to admit that. But they were, they're, you know, my dad and my mom and the, and the people around them were all people that were, you know, they were really, they were really doing the work. Right. I mean, it's like, there was no, there was no, there was no glamour and there was no money. Right. In trying to save people from lead paint in the Bronx in 1985. Right. Like, you're just doing that because... Isn't that interesting? That's a good you. That's you want to see the world be better, you, a better place, and that's the work you're going to do. And that's what you grew up around. Yeah. And what did your mom do? My mom was a teacher um, in the Bronx, and then uh, stayed home for about nine years with me and my brother, and then went back into education where she was a she worked for an arts nonprofit in the Bronx. Yeah. And did arts administration in the Bronx. It's sort. It's fascinating. So, you, so you grew up in this uh, this weird environment of uh, you know somewhat selfless activity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I yeah. mean, neither neither of my parents in the duration of my life ever worked a single day for a for-profit operation. <laughs> That's so uh, anti-American. Not a single day. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I just like, and 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 also, sort of no one. None of their friends did either. I mean, yeah. everyone worked for either nonprofits or civil servants. You know, the government. My dad ended up. Going to the, the health department where he did, you know, uh, he just retired actually. Where he did, he worked in in Harlem and yeah. and other poor neighborhoods on public health stuff. So and did you now, like you know, it, it, there, there's something about like I I don't know, like on a spiritual level, I, and and I think this was uh, you know, something that's lost a, 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 on a lot of people that there there is something about helping others that makes you feel good. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and it does make uh, the world a better place. Uh, but people have become very self-involved culturally now that, uh, you know, sometimes there, there's a, a, I have a, a slight sense of panic at the disconnect between human beings. But I've also found that, like, especially in New York City, and it's one of the only cities I've experienced it, is that, you know, if someone goes down on the street, if something happens on the street in New York, it's astounding how many people are, like, in there to help. Yes. Because someone will immediately take charge. It's funny because people... People have the opposite view of New York. There's like the the famous Kitty Genovese you yeah. know, murder, the woman who she was murdered in this courtyard in, in right. I think it was Queens, and she was screaming and no one helped. And this was like this sort of iconic moment of like the shame of New York City right. where like no one helps anyone. And my experience in New York is 100% the opposite. Always, like, me too. If someone's walking around with a map yeah. and, on the subway and they yeah. look like a little lost, it's like... Yeah, moths people. to a flame of like you, you need you need yeah. directions, and, they, like, and then and when they walk away with them at three people go, oh fuck, I don't, I don't think I told her. Hey, can yeah, you? yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely no, it's absolutely true. Like <laughs> how many people I've given directions, and, and two minutes later I'm like, oh shit, that the wrong, <laughs> the fucking wrong train, and getting the wrong train. <laughs> happens all the time i don't know enjoy coney island yeah yeah sorry it'd be good for you an adventure but no but but it's true so how how did that mold you i mean like we're like you know seeing this what were the expectations out of you were you brought up catholic 
So yeah, we were brought up Catholic. So your uh, dad's a believer. He is a believer. Yeah, we would go to. We went to church every. We, I went to church every Sunday. I went to CCD on Wednesdays and then on Sundays. I don't even um, know what CCD is. I don't even know what it stands for. You know, uh, uh, really? Sunday school catechism. <laughs> okay, all right. You don't know what it stands for. <laughs> no. Come on, Chris. You're the I wizard. Used to, I used to get out of. Uh, you know, school early on Wednesdays and yeah. go over, and then so yeah, my brother and I both raised Catholic. Um, you know, with I, the fear of hell. You know, we had a very, we had Catholicism. Like my father was raised in a Catholic home where it was like old school Catholic, right? Like his parents until the day they died went to church every morning. They were incredibly devout. Yeah. They were incredibly anti-abortion. He's not Italian, your father. No, he's Irish Catholic. Okay, okay. So there you go. The two. Yeah, I got yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but I guess also there's a practicality to coming from his generation of Catholics and, and somebody as dedicated to the work, uh, the social work of Catholicism. I think that when you live that life, uh, you're a little more practical about putting the fear of God into your kids. Absolutely. Like we did not grow up in a home where... You know, yeah. I, I did something and then was consumed by guilt that I was going to go to hell. Right. But I think, like, I think that's my my parent, my dad's generation of Catholics. Right. That's sure. their experience of the religion. I mean, right. And I think it was incredibly. It turned so many off. I mean, there's so many people. You know, yeah. The the Fark fallen away Roman Catholic. Yeah. Who were just completely scarred. Yeah. Uh, it just uh, that you know at six or seven, being urge to contemplate eternal torture and damnation because you took a piece of gum out of the drawer you shouldn't have. Right. Which was a lot of people, that generation's experience of Catholicism is still today, I'm sure some. Well, I think they did, the family or the parents would display some of the the um, disciplinary action onto the church. Absolutely. So, like, yeah. you, you know, they, they it afforded them a little bit of freedom yep. just to let the church terrify their children. That is, I think that's really true. Or, or in the cases of the nuns. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the beat school the shit out of the kids. Yes, yeah. beat, beat the crap out of them and also the school discipline, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like, the, these are all sort of tools in the tool chest yeah, yeah, <laughs> for yeah, like yeah. For confining the behavior yeah. of children is, yeah. is there's like, do this because I said so. And then there's like, do this because if you don't, you will burn in hell for sure, eternity. Just generations of self-loathing, <laughs> guilt-ridden yeah, it's, people. Yeah, it's screwed a lot of people up. I mean, it's funny because I am no longer a believer and yet I'm, I'm both no longer a believer and yet my feelings about the kind of Catholicism I got yeah. are largely positive and warm did and you do you know the day that that happened like the, like when when yes you... i do really <laughs> yeah uh i got to i got to brown university freshman year brown and i was what did you what year did you graduate uh 2001 uh-huh and i was committed to going to church yeah and when you got to brown when i got to brown yeah and mm-hmm. this is, you know, when you're 18 or whatever, 19, like, you know, waking up early at Brown, like to go to church, it's, you know, you're they, there with celebrity kids, yeah. and legacies, <laughs> yes, and smart liberals. Yeah. And you I needed, you needed some sort of order. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, you, well, I think I wanted, I think I had some sense that I, that it was an interesting test of my faith that if I was going to do this while I was by myself. And I remember going to early that fall, I went to mass and, yeah. and the, and the, priest gave a homily about the passage in the gospel in which Jesus said, what God has joined, let no man rend it asunder. Um, and that is, I don't even know what that means. It's about divorce, basically. Okay. It's basically the okay, sort of, okay. it's the, it's the, the kind of theological basis of the church's objection to divorce. Right. And he just went on this like long anti-divorce homily. And I was just like, I'm out. Really? 
I just was like, this is... That, that's, this what, is that's when Jesus left you? I was just like, this is preposterous. And I think that my my response to him in that homily in that moment was was less theological and more just like political or practical. Sure. But what it meant was, I was just like, I, I got no time for this. And then I just stopped going. And then once I stopped going... And then I, I started studying philosophy as the thing that I did all the time. I just yeah. like, I just came to the belief that, you know, there is no God. The, the, we, this is pra- all- yeah, it was rational. Yeah. You like, broke it down. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that like, I don't say that in any sense of like, that is the one truth. Like that, that, no, no, that, no, was, no. The, that but, was the conclusion I came to, but the conclusion was preceded by the ebbing of practice. You know, right. I mean, okay, I think there's yeah, like, yeah, 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 my yeah. point is that like, all of these things about our belief systems are inextricably bound to our habits and practice and life world. Sure. Like, it's a control thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the way we, right. It's the way we control mm-hmm. the crazy amount of stimulus that pour into our life. And, and, yeah, and also it's just the, the sort of the repetition. I, you know, I yeah. think, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of religion is, is like uh, sort of um, encouraged OCD with the uh, ideology, you know, like there, there's a, a repetition of, yeah. of ritual and, and, and whatnot that, that it kind of grounds you in something. Cause yep. you just, when you're untethered, it seems like you sort of used your brain to sort of tether you. But a lot of people are, you know, they don't want to execute that. So they're just sort of like, they keep the order going. Yes. I mean, I, I had a friend of mine who, who became very religious yeah. after not, uh, after being not that religious, who basically said that to me. Oh really? Like, yeah. I just need something to keep. No, me not only that, but that people do, and that like he sort of now looks at secular folks as like just like adrift. Like, how do you even? Well, you got your iPhone now, and it yes, takes up a lot right. of <laughs> a lot of distractions. Again. I, I've been doing refresh, work, yeah. refresh, refresh. I've been working on a bit of. Uh, I just started doing this bit that, of that. Like, I don't know if it's my age or what, but like you know, if I set my phone down. For a few minutes, I, I get an existential terror. It, it's almost like when oh, I yeah. when I set my phone down, it's like I'm dying. I'm dying. And you t- yeah. Give me the phone. Where's Twitter? You can feel that. Like it's physically like in the chest. Yeah. In the same place that that real like panic attacks or anxiety starts. Like and that your heart is, and that you should be feel, you should be okay. Like I drive home sometimes. I don't put the radio on. Or you do, yeah. Do you take time? Do you like because you know meditation is a practice which I don't do unless I'm just in my car. But like just to, to feel silence and the, the tactile sensations of like having your hand on a wheel and just knowing that the vessel you're occupying is temporary. It's just like maybe I'm going too far with it. I should be thinking about other things. But but I feel it now. I don't know how old you are. But in your life, did you you did not have a, a spiritual craving or did you find a higher purpose? I mean, were you looking for answers? No, I think my um, I think I'm a person who's who's sort of biological makeup neurological makeup is disposed to anxiety me too um, it's like yeah. it's it's yeah. horrible and sometimes i think it's getting a little worse really dread yeah i yes dread and uh, <laughs> dread and nostalgia in this potent mix of like i i think i'll f- explain that to me a little bit the way that the my, poetry of that the way that my anxiety is always manifested to me is just the the, the keen awareness of the onrush of time towards permanent non-existence <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's not necessarily nostalgic unless you you no. But it can be in these specific moments where you oh, right, right. where the nostalgia will sure will sure. rise well, up and that's you'll... where I went to college. That's yes, a, yes, yeah. and then it's like right, right, and you that real, kind yeah. of like tunnel feeling of yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. All passing, it's all yeah, passing, yeah. it's all passing. And I also understand it, that getting back to this religion thing about yeah. how if I really did believe in yeah. a, in an actual sense in an afterlife, like that would be relieving massively mitigating 
Well, that's the whole, that's the big pitch. That's the big pitch. And like, it's like awesome. Like if you believe that in your, in your cells, yeah. like that's You're great. Good. Like good. I would love to feel that way. It's, I would love to not feel. It's like having health care. <laughs> it's very similar. Eternal. That's why Canadians are sort of like, you know, kind of cool. I mean, they're not incredibly interesting all the time, but there's they're some basic thing that they, they relaxed about. Yeah. Well, I, I understand that, and 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 I I feel the anxiety, and I it, I think after a certain point in your life, it becomes like it's interesting that you know somebody that that turned back to religion because it for me it's like once you go through a rational period or you've turned your back on religion or you were never prone to a spiritual search or a need for a god to to sort of come to one at sixty or seventy years old, uh, it, it's almost sort of like I'm gonna I'm gonna turn that part of my brain off. I've had enough hmm. working the angles. So now I'm just sort of like, yeah, there's a God, and uh, now I'm 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 gonna just relax. I just wonder all all the time about whether, like, I find that process fascinating because I just I, it's unclear to me whether you can will yourself to that or or how that comes about. The suspension right? of disbelief. Yeah, like yeah, it's like, crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's like it, it's yeah. it, it, it. So so, how do you deal with your anxiety? What do you just do? Just overwork? Yeah, overthink? I mean, I think fo- focus on the things. Like, I actually find there are some people who have anxiety that is exacerbated by having like a lot of tasks yeah and mine is in in some ways the opposite like having goals and projects yeah is what i find is the most satisfying way like the concreteness of 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 embedding myself in the finishing of a task is I find like incredibly satisfying. And so that's the show every day. I got to make a show every day. Yeah. That's longer term writing projects. That's sure. like that, like the projects, the projects, that the projects, it. the yeah. projects yeah. to me is the thing that really like makes me feel um, relieved of that. And do you find that like because a lot of this stuff you're writing about things outside of you? I mean, you know, how much. Uh, like of your, you know, your your heart and mind and your your personal, you know, sphere is is uh, being avoided, right? Like, do you- <laughs> how much of your life is just specifically about avoiding the terror? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, well, I think we all, right? We all cope with it. It's like sure. a human condition, right? Yeah. So I, I think you know, I have kids now. Um, and how many? I have two. I have really? Th- yeah. Oh, so that's full time. Yeah, I mean, like, and and that actually, like, I've been away from my family. This is as long as I've been away from the kids. We left on a Friday week? a yeah. week. You know, it's going to end up being like nine, eight or nine days. And it's a really fascinating thing about doing the FaceTime. Doing the FaceTime. Yeah. I actually that what I do with my three year old is I like send her these little dispatches that I like oh, record videos? and I yeah. text it to her and then yeah. she texts me one back. Uh, and great. I do these like sort of like quasi. News report, you know, where I'm oh, like, yeah. oh, that, you know, we're about to. This is a this is a helicopter that fights fires, and yeah. we're going to go up in that. And oh, you do that, yeah. And That's then nice. I send it to her, and and she sends me questions back. And, so you're actually, you know, you're doing a show for your child. I'm doing a show for my yeah, child. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. <laughs> Chris Hayes, your dad. <laughs> Good evening on, from California. Yeah. I'm your dad. <laughs> I'm on location. <laughs> um, so, what was the? Did you study philosophy? Was that your major? Yeah, that was my major. In fact, it was uh, it was philosophy of math and science. And oh so my god! I did, Jesus, I did very like I did like advanced deductive logic and Girdle's proof and. Um, but that's math. It was math. Yeah, it's math. Yeah. So you didn't you didn't dick around with like Spinoza and whatnot. I did some of that too. Like I I you know I took existentialism. And I took epistemology and stuff like that. But um, I was specifically on the the philosophy of math. Stuff. The logic track. 
a logic track. Um, yeah, it's a, the numbers don't add up, so that's uh, that's clearly not true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I remember I had this 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 experience, uh, yeah. this really insane experience where when you're moving apartments at some point, you mm-hmm. know, and you're taking your, you know, that that talk about like a nostalgia opportunity, right? Yeah. When you have to go through your books and like you're taking. I'm it off surrounded the shelf. by this shit. There's shit yeah. I've gotten from college. That I still think <laughs> yeah, I'm going to exactly. read. I still think I'm going to read some of this shit. A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Guitar. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's make a wager right now. I, know I did some <laughs> underlining in there at, at one point. Did you read that book? Guitar, you yeah. know those guys? Yes. What was that about? I don't know. I all to, right, all right. I have no... Okay. I, I, I'm never going to get to it. But I had this experience where yeah. I, I, one of the books I took off was my like did one of my deductive logic yeah. books from college. Yeah. And I open it up, and in the margins are these just furious, extensive notes, yeah. and it literally might as well have been written in Chinese. Like, I can't, I could not believe that the person who wrote those notes was a, was a version of me who understood any of this. Yeah. Because it was so remote to me. Yeah. I was just like... Yeah, it's weird, right? Who wrote, who was that person? That was me, but I don't, yeah. I can't make sense of any of this you, anymore. You're loading your brain up. You were in it. <laughs> I was you, in it. You're, you're training. Yes. So what was the original idea? Uh, you know, what was, what did you want to do with your life? When you were in college, I mean, I know you ended up the journalist and this guy that hosts a show and is uh, is uh, fighting the good fight. But it, it, you, you must have been more selfish at some other point. Well, yeah, no, I wanted to do. I I really wanted to be a performer. I wanted to be a theater. I mean, I did a ton of theater. Really? Yeah. Like plays? Yeah. You were an actor guy. I was a, a, a director, actor. I directed a. My friends wrote a musical. I directed. I did a solo show my senior year. Um, I acted. I was in Three Sisters. I wrote plays. I wrote a lot. I was. You wrote I, plays. Yeah. Got how many? Three or four. Probably. Really? Yeah. Full three act or uh, yeah. like one full one full three act and no shit smaller ones of so, uh, one act solo show. When when are you gonna get back to that? I want to actually. You do? Yeah, I do. I I I I definitely at some point want to do theater again. What I, would it take? I mean, wait, I mean, how? Wait, it seems like you have a mission. So, what, like, how does a guy like you just pull out to do some theater? <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I, that's an unanswered question. Um, you know, I, I'm. Um, did you do theater? I wrote a, a couple of plays, yeah, no, no, and, I knew that, but right? I didn't. You know, I was. You know, it was not the 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 theater school, but I did. Yeah, but I you, acted, yeah. and you know, I directed, and I was. You know, I mean, but it, I ended up pursuing that. I didn't. You know, I didn't. You know, I I tried to save the world route for a few years, and I was like, I'm I'm too selfish for this. <laughs> Get back to talking about myself. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the world is great and all, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, part of what I love best about the show now, or doing the work I do, is that it it there's some part at which it feels like we make a play every day. Yeah, like there's a, there's a bit of that like esprit de corps, like we're making a show and right. and the show sure, has sure. to come together and there's lights and tech and yeah, you're kind of in show business. Yeah. I yeah. mean, in, in a, in a way we it's are all show business news. It's everything. Sh- sure. There's a lot of things perfor- that you guys do up performing. there. Performing. Yeah. Um, but I miss, yeah, I miss the theater. I loved, I loved, it was like, who are your guys? Like, what do you, what are your, you know, what do you, who are your playwrights? Um, you know, designated mourner, um, by Wallace Shawn. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I've. I, I, I don't know if I've read it, but I, yeah, uh, yeah. it's a. It's really an. That's like my sort of aesthetic, which is a sort of like long and ruminative, monologue-driven kind. of- I think of, I read the Fever. Yes. Right. Well, the Fever's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. The fever's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, um, 
And then I also I like musicals a lot. Like the, this show that I'm on Broadway, which um, is by a friend of mine, yeah. Hamilton, um, is you know it's about Alexander Hamilton, this hip hop musical about Alexander Hamilton. And I, you know, there's there, I think there's two types of people in the world: people who like love musicals and hate musicals. Basically, it's like a very polarizing. Well, I think the people that that hate musicals are, are afraid of themselves. <laughs> they like. <laughs> Like I, I know, like there, there's a certain, you know, uh, I think uh, slightly macho posturing yes, that goes in. Yes, because like you know, I, I find that if I go to a musical, I don't seek them out, but if I do, I'm, I'm just crying immediately. It's, exactly, because it's, people are singing. It seems so vulnerable to me. It is an incre- I could not agree more. Like I, there is something that a musical can do. At some, yeah. some switch it yeah. turns on emotionally that yeah. is, for me, nothing else reaches. It's crazy. It's, I don't know why I don't seek them out. You know what I mean? Because I feel like if I do, I have to change my lifestyle. I don't, I don't know who I'd be anymore. The kind like, of person. That's yeah, like, yeah. I gotta be. I'm the musical doing? guy. No, I'm going to Phantom. I'm, yeah, I'm going to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's the twentieth time. It never gets old for me. I'm gonna be one of those guys. <laughs> there are people like that. I know. I mean, there's. Like, I know. I got a friend who's a really kind of like cranky, cantankerous dude. Who I've known for years, and he literally will take. He lives in New Mexico, where I grew up, and he goes to he goes to New York once a year just to go to musicals. It's like he gets it out of his system. But uh, well, that's interesting. So you wrote a musical, or you just directed one? I directed a, a musical that my friends had written uh, that we we did at college my junior year. So how do you? When did your your heart break, and you decide that was not a practical future for you? <laughs> well, I got a, I got a college, um, and my now wife and I moved to Chicago. And I basically, for the first few years that I was in Chicago. Why Chicago? Um, she's from Chicago. Right. I had family there. My dad's from Chicago. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was so much cheaper than New York. Oh, I mean, yeah. That was the big reason. And it's interesting. It's actually over over time, I've, I've sort of been to enough cities where I, I know the cities that, you know, actually kind of are uh, authentic in their own thing. I mean, there's a lot of cities that, you know, I don't want to piss off any cities, but like, there's a few cities in America that are just sort of like, this is you know a real deal kind of historic thing yep. that still survives. There's yep. this organic nature to it, and that's one of them, right? Yep. yep, it's its own thing. It's its own thing, and it's also like because because of the cost of living relative to other sort of cultural meccas that people yeah. will go to is so low. What you get in Chicago is there was all these people in their twenties, yeah. right? Like. You know, paying two hundred and fifty dollars a month in rent, three hundred dollars a month in rent, and then maybe waiting a table here or two, but then like writing their show or doing comedy or painting, or for, there, there was a lot of space for people to kind of pursue, yeah, this was, kind of work or do really amazing like you know social justice work, and all of that in some ways is kind of was facilitated by how much cheaper living there right. was. Right, it was like New York in the 70s. Right, exactly. Right. Like, yeah, there was a time where a lot of cities had that, but now it almost doesn't exist anymore, not even where it's supposed to exist. And I think that's kind of diminished the arts communities in general. Absolutely. Like, if you can't have a bunch of poor creative people living somewhere, and you know, six to a loft. That's or, ex- right, that, 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 that is what facilitates. I mean, when we think about these places that were that, yeah. you know, the Lower East Side sure. in, the, in the 80s. Yeah. They were that because it was cheap. Yeah, it was all about space. Yeah. It's having the space to work and, yeah. and, and to create and, and to put on shows. And like you could do it. Like, you know, like we got a loft and we're, you know, we're putting on a show. It doesn't, it's not. We, we put on, even when, even when I was tw- 27, 28, my, a buddy of mine um, who had 
who I'd gone to college with and did, done theater with, like I just directed a solo show of his in the basement of the apartment that we right. had. It's great. And we got like, I mean, I'm sure this is not legal in any yeah, sort of fire sure. code sense, but we got like a hundred people in there. And... I think you're all right. There's a statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's Chicago a, fire there's department. not going to be some right wing rag going, Hayes broke the fire code in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Putting on his lefty plays. But, uh, well, what do you think about that? I mean, how do you feel, you know, when you when you, you know, people talk about the National Endowment and, and about the, the necessity of arts and, and culture? I mean, it seems to me that even even creative people like I, you know, I even become condescending. Like I I did a stand up show that they have once a month or something at, at this collective you know, downtown here that do that kind of stuff, that do plays, that do, you know, provocative political stuff. And, and you know, I, I've seen that all we've seen it before whatever it is but this is another generation doing that but there's part of me that thinks like you know this has been done before yeah but how does that how does that nourish you know have you thought about that you know what the arts actually do and what their place is i have i mean my mom worked in the arts was like an arts administrator and worked for this nonprofit in the arts yeah you know i i think for me personally the most important training i got for my life yeah was through the theater i did in high school and college Really? How so? A huge part of adult life. Yeah. The two biggest things about adult life, I find. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's presentation, like uh-huh. occupying your space, yeah. standing in, looking someone in the eyes, delivering yeah. to them, yeah. and collaboration, mm-hmm. like working with other people to make a thing work. And right. we had this student-run theater at Brown where we you know, we controlled the building. We got to, and we would have these long meetings where we would decide who's going to, you know, all these applications and we'd fight yeah. over who's going to get the space for the next show. That was m- closer to adult life than any other thing I did Yeah, in my four years at a, you know, great university. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it was, it was just about the basic mechanics of group decision-making and collaboration. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that th- this is in some ways a practical argument for how important the arts are, but- just i think like every kid <laughs> should have that awakened in them the creativity and the collaboration the creativity the collaboration the sense of like i can make a thing with my friends i can yeah. you know and and how do we do that and how do we skirt around conflict and <laughs> yeah how do you win an argument in the room yeah. you know yeah. like th- those were meetings that's yeah. all they were which is like the the least glamorous parts of the part of the arts yeah but also for me the most instructive i i understand what you're saying about collaboration in arts but there's also something about the freedom of expression yeah right. you know on an individual basis yes. i mean I, I hear what you learned but i always wonder like y- you know people get so self-involved it's and and not entitled but everybody's expecting to win the lottery or be the or be the next genius and and there's a there's not a lot of um uh, sort of attention paid to the, the just the, the act of, of expressing that yourself. That is, and, yes. I mean, the difference between doing a thing because it will get recognition yeah. and doing a thing because that thing expresses something yeah. or fulfills you, yeah. it, it is so hard in a media landscape that is in a very literal fashion built upon the endorphin rush of the ping of recognition and also it's 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 very accessible i mean you know there is the ping of recognition but now anybody like there there's something about the the very design of content or what people call content is that and there's a freedom to it like hey everybody can do their little thing and put it up on youtube and you know with or without the expectation 
you know, I, I, I think it's great that everyone has a, a voice and that they can show it. But I mean, but, you know, some voices are better than others. Sure. And, and, and that's just the way it is. But there is a way to nourish a delusion uh, around, like, you know, putting things out in the world with these expectations. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I really early on when I first started doing journalism, freelance writing when I was in, in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Let's get to that. What what made you go like, nah, the arts aren't Well, gonna... I would do them both. I would I would do, I was doing theater and I was doing some freelancing. And, and, and this relates to this point in, in that I would write articles and they would be in the alternative weekly. Yeah. And, and then like, poof. They'd be gone. They'd be gone. No internet yet. No internet yet. Yeah. Very early. I mean, there was internet, but it was, these were not articles. Weren't. So you had to walk down the street with somebody and, and to get the free paper. And I, go would, like, I would Look. go the first day that I had a byline <laughs> yeah. was in the winter and I got on the bus and rode it south on Clark Avenue, knowing that the van that dropped off the free paper came from downtown. <laughs> yeah. And I went south until I hit a bookstore that I knew that was south enough to have it. And I got them. They were like fresh off the press. I yeah. grabbed it and like saw my byline. Yeah. I, was, I still remember that moment. Amazing moment. It's greatest. But it's also also, what I came to realize is that it was going to be a path to misery for me if the way that I valued the work was the reaction it got, because right. sometimes it would get a reaction, sometimes it just like dissipated. And so in the same way that you're you saying- You really realized that at, at, at that point? I really did, yes. As opposed to like, you know, that's not some sort of, you didn't, uh, you know, uh, retrofit that. No, I realized it in that moment. Now, I have lost sight of that a million times since. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, yeah. I can hold that in my mind well, that, well, intellectually. That's, well, that's sort of, uh, that's a result of what you were talking about before, this weird endorphin, clickbait, yeah. immediate gratification uh, media situation we have so you fall victim to that because now you're making a show that's out in the world and you're like did it go viral or yeah. did it did, yeah. did people did anyone pick up on that yeah did it get traction yeah so uh so yeah so it's not uh, as opposed to like was that did we did we make a thing that was good that right right a good thing in the world yeah. that i'm proud of yeah as, yeah as a as a thing as a right. little thing did we chip away <laughs> yeah at right the, at, the, yes. at the big problem <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you start by doing, but also it's interesting and how you talk about theater is that that's also something that happens with community organizing. That's also something that like, you know, you were in a creative environment, but it sounds to me, you know, from what I've read and, and uh, about people who do it, specifically our president and about uh, what you're saying about your father. I mean, that whole that whole undertaking of, of facilitating social change on that level is completely crazy in terms of like you know sitting in a room full of people and making yes. decisions. Oh yeah, absolutely, and it, in both ways, sitting in a room full of people and making decisions, and also you can't be looking for recognition or like victories every day. No, I, yeah, I mean most of the time you're just there, and well, th well, and no are... one cares, and you're not, and you're losing. Right. That's, <laughs> that's that's fucking mind blowing to me. Like, and that's what people don't realize. Like, you know, I pulled myself out of the political dialogue because I knew I was a fraud on some level in that. Like, you know, yeah, I was angry. I was concerned. I'm a bright guy. But, you know, bloviating about something or or, or, or taking bits of news and going like, fuck the power. You know, it, that's all fine. But the way shit gets done is in rooms full of people that know they're losing. Right. You know, making incremental growth for yes. people that have nothing. Yeah. That's that's where it happens. It's not some dude like, you know, pounding his hand, you know, on on television. Well, look, I don't hear Well, no, and that wasn't a shot at you. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, believe me. I I don't have I have no illusions about my relative um efficacy compared to the people that do the kind of work you're talking about. But I do think here's my feeling about about sort of this in general, yeah. which is 
on a on a kickoff in a football team. Yeah. All right. The way a, a, a kick is covered is everyone is has to stay in their lane and not all chase the ball. Because right. if everyone chases the ball, you open up a huge gap for big returns. And so there's this incredible impulse to chase the ball because yeah. you're like, that the guy's there. I want to go tackle him. And you are coached. Keep in your lane because if you chase, that opens up an opportunity for a big run back, right? right? And I sort of think about social change like people all have their lanes. Yeah. Like, so your lane... But is everyone happy in their lanes? I, mean, I don't know if they are, yeah. but I do think that, like, not everyone's going to do the same thing, right? right? And, sure. And, and there's all sorts of different things people sure. can do that actually do, yeah. like, make the world a better sure. place. All right, so you're you're writing for the alt alt paper in yep. Chicago, doing your plays. Yep. You know, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly <laughs> walking around in your in your heavy overcoat. Yeah, all three of those are exactly correct. <laughs> you, you 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 stayed with the woman that you met back then. Yeah, we've been together since we were nineteen. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's something. What happens? What makes you leave behind? Uh, you know, the arts and, and really start to, what what did you decide your mission was? It, it was less a decision and more that the it was easier to make a living and there was, I was getting more traction writing okay. as a journalist. And mm-hmm. I ended up getting a, I ended up getting a full-time job uh, at a small lefty magazine called In These Times in Chicago. Uh-huh. I remember that magazine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, been yeah. around forever. It's still around. Yeah. Uh, it's great. And I honestly think, like, if I had, if someone had hired me to be the artistic director of a small theater company, like, uh, the missed opportunity, I would have done that, and <laughs> <laughs> you'd still be there. You'd be the old guy. I would guy. still be there. He yeah. was here in 1980. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's been here for 20 years. That guy. Yeah, probably drinking a little. Probably very different. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'd be happy doing that too. Um, yeah. But um, so basically, I just started getting more traction and then and then also there was this era right around around sort of 2004 yeah. 2005 where the internet starts to really that kind of like that moment which you I'm sure remember because that was sort of the same moment of kind of peak anti-bush yeah. mobilization air america all this stuff the the net roots the blogosphere at that moment then all of a sudden there's this way for the work I'm doing in Chicago to start finding this larger and larger audience mm-hmm. through, through the internet yeah and as i'm doing that work and writing it and they're getting a little recognition that sort of sends me on the path towards you know doing what i'm doing now well what in, in terms of social responsibility obviously you were you were wired because of your childhood and because of the models you had in your family and and and, and your old man and and whatnot what was driving you? What 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 was the one thing that was sort of like outside of just basic lefty politics? I mean, everybody sort of locks into one thing. What was it that made you be like, you know, we've this has got to be fucking changed? I don't know. I mean, I it's so a a sense of sort of justice, injustice, yeah, political commitment is so essential to who I am and how I was raised. Right. It, it, it's almost impossible for me to like pull it out and look at it <laughs> yeah. and examine it. You know? It, it, sure. It, it, I, I, it's a very visceral thing. It's like, I can't, I can't imagine not feeling that way. Right. About things. Right. In the world. What do you think is it like, if you were to like to separate the social conservatives and to separate, you, you know, sort of the, the hate mongering and, and the divide and conquer, uh, you know, nature of, of right wing media and everything else. There are conservatives that believe that their way is correct. 
Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And 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 then there are 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 lefties that that believe that you know this is the way to life. What what do you what is the primary difference in your mind when you strip away the bullshit? That's yeah. I um because it seems like the the righties real conservatives are are almost Darwinian that if you can't survive or 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 win and 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 do it without government help that uh you know you're just what are you gonna do you're just gonna accept your lot in life i I think there are i think there are competing uh values about what a good society and a good life are and there are and again this gets back to this sort of visceral sense like Mm -hmm. i have a visceral sense of like equality and fairness Mm -hmm. i don't have a visceral sense of say purity right i just don't it doesn't like it doesn't scan to me. Yeah, it, what what was that? Indicate? You know, purity. Uh, the the sanctity of like marriage is like a pure institution that's being like infected by gay marriage, for instance. Right, right. right? Well, those are well, those are social issues, but there are, there are these economic issues that seem to like the the, the difference. But in right, it, where like fairness. So yeah, here, here's another example. Like I have an I have a sort of visceral at- attachment to to fairness. Right. Whereas I just like I don't. That that sort of visceral libertarian impulse of like yeah. step off and get off my back. Right, right, like, right. The place where politics really functions, which yeah. is like in the like flushed cheeks at a Thanksgiving dinner table, that is related to but distinct from all these arguments we have. Right. Like, there's some moral intuitions that people have, whether they're born with them, whether they're they get them through life experience, that there are things that 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 fire them morally. Yeah that that are wrong and right and and conservatives and liberals have different things that that kind of fire them up more yeah yeah you know and and it, it can be very hard like it is hard to put myself in the shoes of people that viscerally feel angry about air regulations yeah. or or there's or or angry about <laughs> light bulb you know this was like a, a pet cause for a while was yeah, changing the light bulb. changing the light bulbs. yeah to more energy efficiency and i i can understand like oh i can understand big interests that want to diffuse regulations which a lot of that was just right. a- astroturf for them well they were just dragging angry people along but that's the thing is that that argument that argument they're gonna have to change your light bulbs like that captivated something in some segment of people and it was it is now impossible for me to make the empathic leap into the shoes of a person who is really angered by that. Well, they, well see, like I just like I, I, I can think about it and I can analyze it. And I could I could report on and talk to people that feel that way. But there are certain things that it's just very difficult to be like, of course, because like they, because they're not they're angry about other things. They've just been sparked, you right. know, by garbage like the the. the <laughs> You know, these people are walking around feeling like they they've been gypped and they didn't get theirs, and like that's that whole thing is how how do the the Republican Party you know convince people to vote against their economic self interest? You know, how do they do that? It's be- yeah, but I see I I I, uh, I don't think I think I don't buy that argument in some ways. Or, yeah. or or what I want to do is I want to approach politics in which I grant people. Regular people. We're not talking about like corporations who are trying to, you know what I mean? We're talking about like actual people who actually have politics, like people that walk around, have jobs, you know, whatever. We're not talking about like, you know, a coal company that's like, we don't believe in EPA regulations. Right. I want to grant people that their beliefs have as much sort of like 
not legitimacy as in their their right, but integrity that the, they are about what they say they are. But you can't empathize with those people. I, I just can't put myself into the into the mind space. I can sort of try to understand and see where they're coming from. Because I, I just think there are certain irreducible moral instincts we sure, have. Sure, but I think most people have them, and there's a belligerence that is that is that is stoked. That like like I realized this the other day is that the democracy really depends democracy functioning really depends on the number of people that are okay, not great, yeah, not shitty, right? I'm okay, you know that I got problems yes. and yeah. so there's that 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 Freud line about how the the point of 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 analysis is to turn like unsparing misery into ordinary unhappiness, right? Like, I think is a line. <laughs> like, it's uh, like <laughs> they, they, similar, right? So I I feel like like even with gay marriage, even with the people that like. It becomes the evolution of, of democracy or a culture. It, the reason it's difficult is that, you know, people are, are stuck in this way of thinking. But eventually, once something becomes, you know, uh, legitimized legally or otherwise or culturally, you know, those people that are like, that's fucking horrible. They, but within a, a certain amount of time, they're like, no, nah, I guess it's just the way it is now. Like they they will accept it. And, and it seems that the people on the margins who, who continue to, to push back against it. Are, are become a minority and that's the way democracy works yeah. is that people aren't necessarily happy with the collective decision but eventually they suck it up and they live yeah. their fucking life yeah and i think a lot of the light bulb stuff and that stuff is just people holding on to something that they feel as being like you know like this isn't what it used to be well that yes and that that feeling that that intuition that thing that like th it's not the way things used to be right one of the fascinating things is that as you get older, it becomes easier to sympathize with that instinct. Well, yeah, but also <laughs> like but, like the the kind of like old man yells at cloud kids these days, get right. off my lawn. That's like right. that used to be a thing I had no subjective access to and is now a thing I have subjective access to right. because I will feel that way sometimes right. about uh, things that 14 year olds are doing and pictures they're taking of themselves and putting online. Yeah. I, I have this very conservative impulse, which is like. No, we no, stop that. Don't do that. Yeah, don't yeah, do yeah. that. Like yeah. that we didn't in my day we didn't do that. I wonder what and, it really and, does. But also like but that type of nostalgia that you know we're talking about and and this used to be for the weird thing about it is it was it far it was far yeah it was before anyone even even having experience of it. Whatever this used to be is this this normal way of living that was once America is is before my lifetime really you know, like by, I'm 63. So in 1963, I mean, that's not the whatever people. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, yeah, 1963, I was born. Born in 1963. Yeah. You just right. said, I'm 63. And right. I was like, what the? But I think a lot of people are holding on to something they, they never even had experience of. It's an idea. Yes, but that's, there's some, uh, you know, I, I, I may be misquoting this, but there's some ancient tablets from like Sumeria that are about like, you know, the good old days? Kids these days, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, like, I get that. You know what I mean? Like, there is this, like, eternal sense of, as part of the human condition, like, there was this thing before we came, this thing to which we will return. But I think what, what the real threat to people like you you and I, or, or, or maybe uh, what I'm projecting onto you, is that the, it's more than just kids these days. It is the, the, the deterioration of, of real community. It, and, 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 and it seems that, oddly, people that have less have a tighter sense of community that that I think that if you talk about class issues yeah. you know the one reason why whatever the the lower class is survives is because for better or for worse their communities are much stronger yeah I mean I think if you, when you 
there there's this trade-off that happens as society either societies get richer or people get richer in which people move around a lot more right yeah. <laughs> like the idea that you know i know people who have you know uh people my parents age who have five kids who, yeah. who live in five different cities yeah. like that would have just been unthinkable sure stay point. in the like, neighborhood that's insane yeah. right and and there's a trade-off there the trade-off is people move because they have opportunities and they have like different parts of the country yeah. and and the thing they give up is yeah. you know in we're all in the same neighborhood and grandma and grandpa are here and they'll watch you after school and that stuff is you know that's a tangible and real loss yeah to you know to not yeah. have that like i right now like I live in New York City and my brother lives a mile and a half away. My parents live I live in Brooklyn, my parents live in the Bronx. I love sure having my like particularly when you've got kids and yeah. we go up to my folks' house yeah. on the weekend. We have like my mom makes amazing yeah. Italian food yeah. and we just got a bigger car so we can give my brother a ride back from the you know right. from the Bronx down to Brooklyn like that is really that's special. And like, that's well that's theoretically what it should be about, right? Yeah. So what do you think, like, as a guy that's on the pulse of this and as someone who is out here, you know, reporting on the drought, literally, like, you know, because the tone of reporting and the tone of, you know, the way news is presented and just the media in general, that there's this almost kind of compulsive, you know, predatory uh, necessity to, to get things that capture people's imagination over news and there is a sense that you know we're just you know spiraling towards the end every day yeah uh, and i and, and i i tend to to believe that 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 might not necessarily be true you're right i mean basically <laughs> i would say bad news good news right yeah. bad news is that like a this is a the western united states is a dry place that exists because of unbelievably um expensive aggressive and remarkable water projects right right okay as a as a general matter like yeah. there's not enough water here it was invented it, yeah, yeah but of course everything's invented too like there's sometimes there's like, no but i mean like it was the city was set up it's what chinatown yeah, is right about. exactly like, yeah we're right, gonna divert yeah. water yes right right so the, the the bad news is that like it's bad like it's literally the three driest years in the history of record keeping of california like they've been keeping records since you know the mid 19th century yeah. like that's crazy it's bad and all right i'll, I'll water less. the other bad thing is, the other bad thing is it will be more like this as we go into the future it will get drier and warmer because, because of the bigger because issue. Of climate change yeah right that, that's just i mean we can't be totally certain climate models are are not certain but everything suggests that's the case the good news is what's amazing is there's still actually a ton of waste in the system yeah I had a guy on last night. We went to Central Valley. We saw we saw this farmer who's drip irrigating. Right, half of the farmers in California still, to this day, use flood irrigation. Right, there is sixty percent of the water that is used in Cal in Los Angeles is basically treated wastewater that's flushed out to the sea because the idea of recycling that's so politically toxic. Right. See, this is the weird thing. So, so there so is still. So the good news is. There is actually still a tremendous amount of waste in the system, and there's tremendous innovations that can happen to just get get more from less. But but this is these paradigm shifts that become impossible because of politically entrenched corporate interests who who refuse to spend the money to make the changes necessary to 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 service the better good uh, for short term profit, or just to or, keep the model going, or just or in the case of water, often I mean that that might be true about sort of the ag, ag agricultural reasons and the water, like you know. The, the idea of taking wastewater, which is, you know, 
wastewater. Yeah. And you can basically treat that to 100% purity, run it back to the system. And people are, that's politically toxic. And, and that's not corporate interest. That's just people being like, I don't want to drink shit. Yes. Hmm. You know, I talked to the mayor two days ago and he said, you know, someone, you know, it had been dubbed toilet to tap, which he's like, doesn't work, but we call it showers to flowers. <laughs> <laughs> but it, and I was like, you're right. Showers to flowers is better than toilet to tap. Well, so, but that's one of those things I think that, you know, over time, if somebody would just have the courage to do it, people would eventually be like, oh, you know, I thought at first I would taste it, but I don't. I'm like, <laughs> you, know, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty all right. good. It's all right. It's, it's all right. Pretty good. I don't no, that you're exactly right. And eventually the pressures of all this will produce that. I mean that But in the bigger sense, like, you know, in talking about like that that's a political problem on, on, on people's sort of sensibilities. But like wh- what do you think is the great unraveling here? And I know that's a longer discussion, you know, but like you, you to have a, a, a relatively corporate occupied government in, in the sense that yeah. Yeah, that it doesn't serve the people. I mean, we're, are are we headed towards a, a, a sort of a, 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 such a, a a divide between classes that it's going to just become a feudal state? I mean, what do you think? I I am I have weirdly become I, I can be profoundly dispirited about the state of American democracy, particularly on this this issue, the sort mm-hmm. of concentration of wealth and the kind of feedback mis- mechanism between the the economy and the yeah. political system yeah. because wealth gets concentrated. Those people have more money. They purchase more influence over the political system. The political system acts in ways that are favorable to them that further increases their wealth. No, it's a money laundering and operation. And it sort of like loops that's, through. Yeah. yeah that's what it, uh, yeah. I, I, here's what I think. The history of money in politics, particularly in America, and the history of American concentrations of wealth is that eventually some s- scandal and backlash happens. And I think the Citizens United era has unleashed what will certainly end in tears. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? I don't know what it's going to look like, but there's going to be some huge scandal. There is going to be some huge scandal that involves some billionaire who's got who 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 funds some candidate and wants and is obsessed with one little tiny loophole in the tax code, and that loophole gets what? stuck into a bill, and no one knows who did it. And this guy gets a you know right. billion a dollar yeah. year tax rebate. I mean, I'm I'm sort of crafting some sort of yeah. Well, the, abstract- this is what your big this is your this is your big uh, this is the hope. This is where we find hope is that the billionaire's no, tax loophole. The, no, the hope is that it will. This the, the, there is some level at which people will react in disgust, and there is already a lot of disgust about the way that all this yeah, is but concentrated. We, but, but, but there's going to be, I, I predict there will be a galvanizing scandal. I mean, people forget Watergate, which was about a million different things, was fundamentally was a campaign finance scandal. Yeah. It was about the committee to reelect the president. It was about suitcases of cash. It was about all this sort of unaccountable money and the quid pro quo. Aren't you underestimating, though, in, in sort of an optimistic way, the cynicism and detachment of the population? Maybe, but I do think that, like, there's going to be some... The system can't keep running like this without producing a truly shocking scandal. Okay, that, that's my prediction. Okay, and I and I think there will be a moment when that's when that truly shocking scandal happens for a whole reevaluation of the system that we've built. Because right now we are, I mean, the thing that we're running, the experiment we're running, is insane. Mm-hmm. The rules are completely unclear. The FEC is totally deadlocked. Mm-hmm. It's every there are. Hundreds of millions and then billions of dollars that are going to slosh around this playing field that 
no one knows the rules for. Uh-huh. It, it it's nuts. No, yeah. we never done it before. Well, that's what that's why the the entire banking system collapsed. That is exactly why the entire banking system collapsed, and we are basically running an analog of that with the campaign finance system now. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm. Well, I guess well, let's hope for that. Hope crisis. for crisis. <laughs> no, hope for. Not crisis, but hope for for a moment when the when the unsustainable ability of it becomes so evident that there is a sort sure. of mass disaster. Yeah. It's that is a naked lunch the 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 burrows when it's it's the moment where where everyone sees what's at the end of every fork or something. Yes, that's. <laughs> well, look, Chris, it was great talking to you, Thank and you. I wish this... you best of luck with your playwriting career <laughs> and your return to the theater. I want to do that. You... I'm going to hold you to it. All right. Yeah, the day Chris Hayes gives up. Uh, in lieu of no crisis, uh, I find it impossible to continue on, and I'm going to return to the theater. That's going to be a big day. It's going to be a big day. Thanks for talking. Thanks. Good guy, solid dude. Heart's in the right place, that Chris Hayes. I enjoyed talking to him. Look, folks, go to WTFPod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'll send you an email every week. Also, get a little justcoffee.coop if you want. Pow! I just shit my pants. Classic justcoffee.coop plug right there for you. Haven't done one in a while. I was drinking iced tea, but, you know, things change. You know what I mean? Things change. Oh, Merlin.